For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. My ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion. Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Harmony of difference and sameness. The mind of the great sage of India is intimately transmitted from west to east. While human faculties are sharp or dull, the way has no northern or southern ancestors. The spiritual source shines clear in the light. The branching streams flow on in the dark. Grasping at things is surely delusion. According with sameness is still not enlightenment. All the objects of the senses interact and yet do not. Interacting brings involvement. Otherwise, each keeps its place. Sights vary in quality and form. Sounds differ as pleasing or harsh. Refined and common speech come together in the dark. Clear and murky phrases are distinguished in the light. The four elements return to their natures just as a child turns to its mother. Fire heats, wind moves, water wets, earth is solid. Eye and sights, ear and sounds, nose and smells, tongue and tastes. Thus with each and everything, depending on these roots, the leaves spread forth. Trunk and branches share the essence, revered and common, each has its speech. In the light there is darkness, but don't take it as darkness. In the dark there is light, but don't see it as light. Light and dark oppose one another like the front and back foot in walking. Each of the myriad things has its merit expressed according to function and place. Phenomena exist, box and lid fit, principle responds, arrow points meet. Hearing the words, understand the meaning, don't set up standards of your own. If you don't understand the way right before you, how will you know the path as you walk? Progress is not a matter of far or near, but if you are confused, mountains and rivers block your way. I respectfully urge you who study the mystery, do not pass your days and nights in vain.
May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the harmony of difference and sameness. We dedicate this merit to all original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha. Our first woman ancestor, great teacher Maha Prajapati. Our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhi Dharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Ehei Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu. The perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri. To the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world. Gratefully, we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time. All honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas. Wisdom beyond wisdom. Maha Prajna Paramita. When he is ready, Tigan will introduce tonight's speaker. Good evening, everyone. I'm very happy to have with us tonight Howard Dewan to give the talk. Howard uh, is a longtime practitioner with us and with Korean lineages before. Uh, he came to Ancient Dragon. He's uh, uh, done uh, Buddhist studies at the University of Chicago Divinity School and also trained there to be a chaplain, and he is now a full-time chaplain. And so, Howard, thank you very much for coming and talking with us. Thanks for having me again. Uh, it's it's been a hot second since I've been around, <laughs> um, but it's good to see everybody again. Uh, how's my volume? Can everybody hear me? Okay. Yes. Great. Um, so the talk I'm giving today, the title is "The Mind Is Without Hindrance: um, Buddhist Reflections on Chaplaincy," um, and I was thinking the titles are always hard and strange for me to try to come up with um but i thought that this one was particularly resonant for me um because it's a the mind is without hindrance comes from the heart sutra um and the excerpt in particular in the heart sutra is uh with nothing to attain a bodhisattva relies on prajna paramita and thus the mind is without hindrance without hindrance there is no fear far beyond all inverted views one realizes nirvana so that's kind of the spirit in which this talk is is being given um, and the spirit in which I've been doing this work that uh, we call chaplaincy. Um, so I know that there's, you know, y- y'all have, there's been a lot of chaplains that have come in and out of ancient track and, <laughs> and I've heard a number of y'all have uh, done the work or know people who have done the work, but um, I find that everybody talks about the work differently. So I'll, I'll do a quick sort of recap of what, I sort of conceive the work to be 
um, what the work of chaplaincy is, how I see what uh, what I see it is that I'm doing, um, the way I'm approaching it, um, and then I'm going to sort of tie that into one of the a passage from Busho, uh, uh, the Buddha Nature fascicle that Dogen wrote. Um, a, a passage from there that I've been thinking about for a very long time and continues to be more and more relevant with practice, um, Buddhist practice, as well as the work that I'm doing. Um, just more and more relevant, more and more resident every time. Um, and then I am going to talk a little bit about some some chaplain visits, some patients that I have seen. Um, with no, no, no personal information, of course, uh, uh, but sort of thinking about how Buddhism, uh, and particularly this, this Zen practice that we apparently do, shows up, how it shows up in my patient visits with folks. Um, so yeah, chaplaincy. Um, so right now I'm currently a full-time chaplain. Um, I will be for at least uh, until September, and then we'll see what happens from there. Um, I've been there since this last September. I am doing full-time chaplaincy work at Rush University Medical Center. So what does that mean? I The spiel I give patients when I walk into the room, and uh, I assure you everybody has a different spiel, is that I basically do uh, emotional and spiritual support. And I've, over the over time, have appended the, the, the sentence that that can look like talking about what's going on, that can look like praying, or whatever the equivalent of praying is for you, uh, or that can mean sitting in silence together just sharing space together. Because I find that most of the work that I do with patients falls into one of the three, if not all three of those things. Talking together, being together, doing some version of praying together, whatever that might look like. And so I, most of the units that I'm on are low acuity units. In other words, I don't see on a day-to-day basis much death. Um, I work on oncology units. I have uh, two of them. And I also have two psychiatric units. I have a few other ones too, um, but those are the two, those are the two types of uh, patients that I see most regularly, cancer patients and psych patients. When I am on call, that means that whatever is happening that day where I am on call, I go to pretty much anything and everything. Sometimes it's support visits where I talk, pray, be with people. Um, But when one is on call, you are basically called all the pretty much consistently to deaths and medical emergencies, what we call code blues. So that usually means something like a heart attack. Um, But deaths are sort of the, the, the big thing that happens when one is on call. So I get to see the range of emotions. I get to see the range of emotions from from the people, uh, the patients and the family members with whom uh, I visit. And I get to see uh, quite a lot of the range of emotions that come up for me. Um, And a lot comes up. (laughs) Um, Sometimes it's mundane visits that bring up a lot of emotions. But obviously, when you encounter situations of death, uh, there's a lot of suffering there. And for a lot of different reasons, from a lot of different places, from a lot of different times. And your own suffering comes up all the time. So there's a lot of assumptions about what I do. Um, 
what chaplains do from myself and from others. Uh, a funny thing that happens quite often is that uh, we'll get a page. We get, we, of course, we don't, we, it's a hospital system. We still use pagers. Um, we'll often get paged by nurses sort of uh, with slightly frantic notes to us saying that a patient is tearful. Please come. <laughs> uh, with the sort of assumption that we will come and make them stop crying or, or make them feel better. Um, and I think I bought into the idea that that was, that was what I was supposed to do for a while. Um, somebody who is uh, one of my supervisors and who I knew before this, um, I think put it really well. He described it, our work as not so much uh, taking away someone's tears or making them feel better, uh, but help, rather helping them feel what they feel. So it's easy, I think, when we hear, say, the Bodhisattva vow to save all sentient beings from suffering, that that means to take away, to remove every last bit of suffering in the world. And I think that is a, a, an aspirational and ideal goal. I also think that is quite possibly impossible uh, to do. And I think there's a different way to approach that vow than the literal, oh, we'll take all the pain away for you. Because that's hard, and we can't really. In chaplaincy, and especially in the educational context where this work is done, um, some people call this the writing reflex. Uh, uh, some, uh, something you want to do um, this knee-jerk reaction that you have to fix things, to make people feel better, to make you feel better, um, which oftentimes actually isn't the best thing to do to really connect with people, to really help them feel seen and heard. So I see the real task is what this supervisor has said to me of helping people feel what they feel. That in a Buddhist context, that it's not so much... Um, a complete absence of suffering, but recognizing, acknowledging, feeling, and being in it directly with 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 no hindrance, um, because it's already there. It's already present. Part of the suffering is not recognizing it or not acknowledging it or not feeling into it. So in a way, um, the work that I've been doing in chaplaincy has troubled a lot of my ideas about what it means to be with people, to connect with people, uh, especially in times of suffering, in times of pain. I think that there's a, a pretty natural parallel here to, to Dogen's um, teaching that practice is enlightenment and vice versa, that enlightenment is practice, that it's not so much that we practice so that we can get to enlightenment or a practice with the end goal of enlightenment, but that practice is it itself. So the passage um, from Boucher, and this is a, a slightly longer passage, so bear with me here. I'm kind of read, I'll be reading and doing sort of a little interpreting, but also just sort of how I've been seeing this play out a little bit in the, the work that I do. Um, this is from Boucher. Uh, it's fairly closer to the end, uh, to the beginning of the, of the fascicle. It's a one of the longer ones. It starts with a quote, and it's 
attributed to Bai Zhang. Um, but who knows? Uh, I, don't, I think the historical record's like, well, we don't know if it's actually accurate here. Um, but the, this is something that Dogen quotes, and this is in Dogen, and Dogen comments on this quote. So the quote he uses is, Buddha said, if you wish to know the Buddha nature's meaning, you must contemplate temporal conditions. If the time arrives, the Buddha nature will manifest itself. So that's the quote. And this is the quote that Dogen takes apart and flip-flops it on its head and does a lot of interesting things with it. If you wish to know the Buddha nature's meaning, which the original quote, Dogen says, is not merely a question of knowing. It means also, if you wish to practice it, if you wish to realize it, if you wish to expound it, if you wish to forget it. This expounding practice, realization, forgetting, and including such other matters as mistaking it or not mistaking it are temporal conditions. And I've been sitting with this 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 paragraph alone <laughs> for a lot of time because it seems to me to this day it feels incredibly radical and strange. Um, because he's critiquing this idea that, well, if you just if you want to know, you have to do this, you have to do this thing. But if you want to know, Dogen adds, well, that also includes if you want to practice it, if you want to like realize it if you want to talk about it if you want to not think about it if you just want to forget about it entirely if you make a mistake with it if you don't make a mistake with it all of this counts uh all of this falls under what dogan calls temporal conditions so and i i think it's important too he keeps saying if you wish if you wish if you wish if you wish this is all desire. This is all desire. This is all you wanting something. Um, even not wanting it, even wishing to forget it, even mistaking it, that is a desire. Desire is a temporal condition. So Dogen says further that the way to contemplate temporal conditions is through temporal conditions themselves. It is contemplating temporal conditions of such things as a fly whisk or a staff. They can never be contemplated by illusory knowledge, non-illusory knowledge, or knowledge gained in original awakening, initial awakening, non-awakening, or right awakening. And so at this point, I read Dogen as basically blowing up any way you can talk about awakening, <laughs> um, where it comes from, what it looks like, how to get there. Um, you have to be right in the middle of the temporal conditions themselves. You have to be right in the midst of it. You have to recognize them, acknowledge them, feel into them, be in them. Dogen continues, must contemplate has nothing to do with someone contemplating or with something contemplated. It has no correspondence to right contemplation or to false contemplation it is just contemplating hence it is not the self contemplating and it is not another person contemplating it is look temporal conditions 
It is the Buddha nature's emancipated suchness. It is, look, Buddha, Buddha. It is, look, nature, nature. And I, I, it's the look part that, that is the, the fun part of this passage. It's the, it's, if it's, it's written out in the text, and I, some of you might have this text, um, this one here. Um, it's written as look with three exclamation marks, and it is the strangest part of this book because this book is fairly kind of dryly academic in style otherwise. Um, but there's something about the like immediate stabbing of the look. Something that stands out to you almost um, int- like deeply intimately. Almost shouting at you that this is suchness. So there's no right way to look at something. There's no wrong way to look at something. There is looking, and that in itself is a temporal condition. You can't get away from temporal conditions. And I think that's sort of like the, the master key and Dogen says it himself, but I think that is the master key to uh, this passage. And of course, there's much more that in this fascicle that expounds on it. But you can't get away from temporal conditions. I think another way to say this is that Alf, he's talking about impermanence. He's talking about the rise and fall of causes and conditions and what isn't subject to causes and conditions. What isn't subject to impermanence. So that Buddha nature is not different from the rising and the falling of those causes and conditions. So whatever shows up moment to moment to moment, that's Buddha nature showing up moment to moment. It's look, 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 like nonstop. (laughs) And it can get exhausting. So I'm going to move a, move into some of the, the uh, uh, patient visits. So, because I, 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 Busho is uh, difficult to understand, and I still have a hard time talking about it. Um, but maybe talking about some patient visits and how I see that playing out, um, I flesh out a little bit of what, uh, how I'm reading Busho. So I've, um, I was thinking about which patients to choose, and honestly, there's just so many I could possibly talk about. Um, so I would just, there's, I settled on two and it's almost arbitrary, but, um, one of them, uh, she was this, uh, 21 year old woman, um, a sickle cell patient. And for those who don't know, sickle cell is, is a horrible, uh, affliction. Um, the chronic pain is, is truly on another level. Um, I had first met this woman. Uh, actually, indirectly, uh, a f- colleague of mine, he is sort of the dedicated sickle cell uh, chaplain. He, so he's the one who follows these patients. They are often readmitted over and over and over and over and over again, constantly, because their pain levels are so so high. Um, and they flare, and when they flare up, they end up in the hospital. So it helps to have some uh, continuity of, of chaplain care. Um, so he had met with this patient before and, uh, he had given me the heads up at some point that, oh yeah, you know, go, go ahead and visit her. You know, she's on your unit. Um, this heads up that she doesn't talk very much. She's, she's pretty quiet. She's pretty tight lipped. She keeps to herself. Um, and you're just going to sit there in silence most of the time. I'm like, okay, yeah, that sounds like something I can do. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I like those visits. 
Um, and so I go on the visit, totally expecting her to, to, to not talk much and that I would mostly be having a, a silent, mostly silent visit with her. Um, those, those are my expectations. And it turned out to be a good 40, 45 minutes of her talking almost all the way through. <laughs> um, not at all what I expected. I had to drop that five minutes in. And she showed me the range of all the anger that she had and the frustration that she had and the sadness that she had. And as I'm listening, as I'm in this room for 40 minutes, there's, I'm, I'm, I keep fighting with myself internally of there's something I want to do. I want to take away the suffering. I want to make it right. Um, and there wasn't much I could do. Like I couldn't give her medicine, like actual medicine. I'm not a medical professional in that way. At the core of a lot of what she was talking about was that she was feeling unseen and unheard, that she was not being taken seriously by the medical team. And so I held some room for her to actually articulate and express how she was feeling. And there still was a lot of silence. Um, but not quite as much silence as when my colleague had met with her. So... This puts me in an interesting position, and I, I find myself in this position quite a lot as a chaplain. I am there to bear witness. I am there to stay with a patient, to be with them as they name, or I could support them in naming what's happening. There wasn't really a need to like go deeper in the way that... Um, Oh no! If we if we find the real thing that's bugging you, or if we find the real issue at stake, everything was already there. Like it was the the whole phrase of um, uh, you know, they wear their heart on their sleeve. It's like it's all sleeves. Everything's a sleeve. Like it's, we're just all made of sleeves. Um, there, there wasn't any need to dig deeper for something because everything she was showing me, look, 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 look. Any attempt for me to try to dig deeper into something was me being distracted looking for something else when she was already showing me everything. And sometimes it was clear. Sometimes it was unclear. This is me talking now makes is reminding me of uh, passages from the Sandokai, the harmony of sameness and difference that we chanted. Uh, so sometimes clear, sometimes unclear, sometimes light, sometimes dark. Don't take it as light. Don't take it as dark, but already present trying to go deeper, trying to find the real thing, trying to do you know, deeper practice to get to that other thing that's further down the road that's truer or more real or something would be missing all the looking that I could, could be doing that is already compelling me to look. What was already right in front of me as it was happening. There's a, uh, this is not special to chaplaincy, but it, it shows up in a lot a lot in the sort of work in the work that we do of language around um, experience near and experience distant. So experience, I mean, this, this might be self-explanatory, but experience distant is, is for example, when you're, uh, let's say you learn some terrible news about something and you start rationalizing. Um, and that, that, that's pretty much experience distant. Experience near is you being able to actually stay with the feeling, being able to talk about, being able to articulate very like viscerally what 
that experience is. So feeling suffering directly doesn't take away the suffering, but it's no longer at a distance. And as much of our Buddhist writings do teach, um, in sort of different ways of saying this, once that distance is noticed, once we are aware, once we look, it becomes that much nearer, even if it's unpleasant, even if it's unwanted, even if it's undesired. I could not take away how much pain she was experiencing. I could not take away her frustration about the medical care team, but I could meet her right in the middle of it, which is a lot more than what was happening with a lot of other people. A um, sort of classic case in chaplaincy that um, I find a lot of, I find I've been having a lot of conversations with or about um, that is a nice, uh, uh, I don't know, litmus test or something for all of this is, is uh, we talk a lot in chaplaincy about miracles <laughs> Um, because they don't function so well in 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 uh, in Zen, or at least not. Or they're more of an uphill battle than they are a downhill. Uh, this is this is the second patient uh, slash family. Um, so I met this family. Um, they had just learned that their that the the patient who was a husband to the family member who was there, the wife, um, that this husband, the patient, uh, was very likely not going to make it. And so I was paged to provide some support for the family as they were dealing with the news. And uh, I walk in, and this wife is blasting Kirk Franklin, who... I love Kirk Franklin. He's a great gospel musician. He's wonderful. I love Kirk Franklin. She's blasting uh, a song uh, that he's very well known for. He is able. And we start, she insists that we start praying and she starts using miracle language um, stuff about like, he's a fighter. God will see him through this because God is able. He is a fighter. Uh, this is his testimony. I trust in God that he will be able to get him through this, all this kind of stuff, right? And the knee-jerk reaction for me still, even though I don't really, uh, uh, I try not to knee-jerk it anymore. Um, and for a lot of the medical staff, the knee-jerk reaction is to assume that the miracle language is wrong or that it's delusional and that people need to be like reminded about reality. And in some cases, this might be the way to go, but I have found in my work more often than not, um, that doesn't need to happen. Um, there's a lot of assumptions about how people should be feeling um, to find out how they're really feeling or what they're really avoiding or something. So miracles also bring up an interesting issue about upaya in this work. Um, and I think Upaya connects relatively well to all the stuff about what Dogen talks about of like, if you want to forget it, if you want to talk about it, if you want to realize it, if you want to practice it, there are different ways to get to temporal conditions. So miracles, even though they're, they seem really distant, like, oh, you only wish for this because like the, you're wishing for the impossible. Miracles, they might seem distant. They're actually very near. Nobody 
starts thinking miraculously in, in, when they're in the hospital without some fear or anxiety that things are looking pretty bad. Um, and over the, or over the course of this work, I've, I've sort of reformulated in my head, but also my, my body, the way I approach these people um, who are saying these things that, that miracles are really expressions of yearning. Um, they are really deep, profound expressions of desire, temporal conditions. They tell me the family, the patient or the family members, like greatest hopes, the greatest fears. I used to not know what to do, but uh, I used to not know what to do when people asked to pray for miracles. And now I honestly have no qualms about it at all. Um, I pray with the patients and the families for them because it's not about what if it doesn't happen or this is not right. Uh, I'm leading them on or something, but rather why wouldn't we considering this situation, considering all the things that are telling us to look Um, something will seem um, misattuned or misaligned because there's already something attuned or aligned in a way that we haven't noticed yet. So like I see what I do both on the cushion in Zen practice, but also in the moment in the work that I'm doing in life to, in mundane day-to-day life also as not so much fixing my misattunements or my misalignments, but seeing what they are, seeing what my attunements, my commitments, my hopes and fears, my desires already are. And I see, my, see, see myself doing this in, in my work too. Only by seeing my temporal conditions, the ones that I am always already just swimming in all the time, sort of inevitably, irrevocably <laughs> stuck in, only by, only, only by actually seeing them do I have a way to start letting go of them? And seeing them is already a little bit of a letting go. When you see your commitments and these values as commitments and values, they're not so obvious anymore. They're not so seemingly natural or that they're the only way things can be. Things loosen up or, as we might say it, things are empty. And so through this work of having to hold other people in their grief um, and their profound, profound expressions of grief and experiences of grief, helping to hold them in what they need to do to express their profound suffering for what it is and not trying to make them grieve a different way or feel less angry when they're feeling very angry also pushes me and challenges me to show up and meet where I'm at. Maybe it's in the breath. Maybe it's by focusing on the breath. Maybe it's by focusing on a sound. But it's really noticing all the looking that is compelling me to look. And of course, this, again, I know I mentioned at some point the the practice enlightenment business, um, or practice is enlightenment business that, that Dogen talks about. I'm, you know, I haven't practiced like super long compared to other folks here, uh, but I practiced long enough uh, to, to notice that 
I, I still have a persistent, persistent hope that more practice like means more enlightenment or something like it's an investment, uh, like a bank banking investment or something, um, or that, uh, practicing will lead to enlightenment. Um, it doesn't, it hasn't gone away and it, I don't think it ever will. Uh, but it does transform. I still need to practice. I think practice is still needed. Um, because practice is how practice and enlightenment show up together. It's not so much about like practicing for something that's off in the future or somewhere else or to get something out of practice. It's about meeting ourselves where we're at as well as meeting the, all the beings that are on our cushions where they're at. And sometimes it's on the cushion, but sometimes it's on the street. Sometimes it's at work. Uh, wherever they are, meeting ourselves is also an opportunity to meet ourselves when we interact with them. Um, so I'm going to end here with um, two passages from Dongshan. Because I, I, this all, you know, this, a lot of the stuff that I've been reading and reading uh, and interpreting here um, can also still sound very individual. And I, don't see my work as individual at all. Um, I react the way I do and I suffer the way I do alongside people because they evoke different things from me. And so my, the suffering I encounter from myself um, is a different kind of suffering because it, it is with other people, it's with and alongside other people. So um, in the record of Dongshan, very hard to, to see. Um, the beginning of the record, these are very these are very well-known passages, and I know that Taigen has talked about these at length in different places. Um, the first one, when Dongshan was taking his leave, Yunyan, his teacher, asked, where are you going? Dongshan replied, although I'm leaving you, I still haven't decided where I'll stay. Yunyan asked, you're not going to Hunan, are you? No, replied Dongshan. You're not returning to your native town, are you? Asked Yunyan. No, replied Dongshan. When will you return? Asked Yunyan. I'll wait until you have a fixed residence, said Dongshan. Yunyan said, after your departure, it will be hard to meet again. Dongshan said, it will be hard not to meet. And I could spend another long time talking about this, but I think for me, the, the crux of this passage is Dongshan is leaving his teacher in this intimate relationship that he's had of learning uh, alongside another person. And he still doesn't really know where he's going to end up. Union asks him if he's going to go this way, he's going to go that way. If he's going to go, I don't, I don't know the, the cultural context for Hunan back at that time, but I assume far away, very far away. Um, then he asked him, are you going to go home basically? And he's not going to go very far away or go home. He asks him when he's going to return, I'll wait until you have a fixed residence. And I know there are, there's other translations that say, I'll wait until I have a fixed residence. So that's a nice uh, ambiguity and emptiness there. You don't know who's, Who's the one who's going to have a, 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 their forever home? 
uh, and despite despite leaving, uh, it's hard not to continue meeting each other over and over and over again. And finally, uh, this final passage, just before leaving, Dungshan asked, if after many years someone should ask if I am able to portray the master's likeness, how should I respond? After remaining quiet for a while, Yun-Yin said, just this person. It's also been translated as just this is it. Dongshan was lost in thought. Yun-Yin said, Jie Acharya, having assumed the burden of this great matter, you must be very cautious. Dongshan remained dubious about what Yun-Yin had said. Later, as he was crossing a river, he saw his reflected image and experienced a great awakening to the meaning of the previous exchange. He composed the following kata. Earnestly avoid seeking without, lest it recede far from you. Today I am walking alone, yet everywhere I meet him. He is now no other than myself, but I am now not him. It must be understood in this way in order to merge suchness. And I think I could continue talking about it, but I think I'll end it right there. I think that sums up my talk. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening. Yuzan. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> good to see you, Howard. Uh, um, good to see your hair back, if I may express in a personal opinion. Um, where did Howard go? Oh, he's over here now. Um, yeah. oh. <clears throat> look, things look. Over. Yeah, look. Oh, there's, there's, your talk, I, I enjoyed it so much, and there's so much there. Um, you know, I, I mean, part of it is about your chaplaincy work, of course, which is, um, I, I will have to be, I, there's there's just so much there I, that I will be, thinking about for a while, but then there's the broader context of practice. And through your talk, these other passages and situations just kept ringing up, you know, and I, I remember the, the, you know, the very famous, I'll misquote it, but the, the famous one by Rinzai where, you know, he's saying, you know, there's a true person of no rank, you know, coming and going from this five foot lump of flesh. And then he ends, look, look, you know, there's this, this, um, again, a repetition, which is a little unusual. And, um, I'm also reminded of, um, something I read many, many years ago. Um, it's about Chogyam Trungpa, who wrote, I think his first book in English was called Born in Tibet. And it has to do with his leading a group of people out of Tibet and into India at the time of the, um, uh, Han invasion. And, um, at, towards the end of that, somebody said, well, well, you know, where will you, and this, this connects with the Dongshan story for me. He says, you know, how will you, you know, you won't meet your guru, your teacher anymore. How can this be? And the response was, you know, situations are the voice of my guru. Situations are the voice of my teacher. Temporal conditions are the voice of my teacher. And 
I don't know. That just, I don't know if I've got a point, um, other than to, uh, point out the resonance, the, the richness, uh, the reverberations of your wonderful talk. So good to see you. Good to see you too, Nielsen. Um, I don't know if you need a point. I don't know if I had a point. Um, and that does remind me of a, of, um, yet another Dongshan passage, uh, of, uh, how, of how Dongshan, uh, when he is asked if he, if he, to the extent to which he approves of Yun Yen's his teachers, teacher, yeah. uh, says, I, I half approve and I, and I half don't approve <laughs> because, and he, when asked why, uh, he doesn't just fully just accept his teacher's teaching because that sounds like, you know, as far as traditional Zen stuff goes, like, why would you disagree? Um, because that, that would be dishonoring his, his teacher and his teaching to completely agree. Um, and I've sat with that one a lot because I think it's easy to, to get caught up in that one as simply um, a relationship between student and teacher um, as like, you know, a Zen teacher or a Zen student. Um, but when expanded to a situation, you know, the, 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 the situation as teacher, um, this other person as teacher. Uh, I think, I think some of you know me well enough that I, I typically use uh, a lot of language about Dharma gate rather than teachers. Um, but I think it's a similar idea, similar sentiment here. Um, a, a complete accordance with the situation is also not great. <laughs> um, as the Sando Kai says, um, because we are also something, someone that is a part of this meeting. Um, it's only natural for us to partially agree and partially disagree. And it is the question of how do we continue meeting sort of, I guess, both in spite of, but also through um, approvals and disapprovals. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... Um... As uh, Dongshan said, you know how how you know how how would I not how would I not meet you you know um, and this is this is uh, I guess that's part of what training is. Okay, thank you, Matt. Hi, Howard. Thank you for your talk. This is Matt in Minnesota. I think I've seen you once or twice, but um, I really appreciate your talk. Um, while you were talking, I was thinking about bodhisattvas. You know, you're doing, we're all doing bodhisattva work, but you're doing bodhisattva work for sure. And um, when you were talking about the young woman who had sickle cell anemia, I kept thinking of Jizo, how Jizo would um, volunteer to be reborn in the hell realms. And it seemed like that was a great example of you just being there kind of like Jizo and Tegan and anyone else can um, correct me if I'm getting my bodhisattvas wrong. And then when you were talking about miracles, I thought about um, Kanon Avalokiteshvara, about, you know, when things get really desperate and you don't know who to turn to, you just call out for help. And I think that's such a powerful place to be, a place of just kind of letting go and just realizing, you know, I only have control over so much and what I have control over is quite little especially in moments like that. So thank you a lot, Howard. Um, yeah, thank you for that. I, you know, I, I know I sort of talked a little bit about 
bodhisattvas, but didn't really talk about them much after the very beginning. Um, there's a there's a there's a, a a case in the Blue Cliff record that I I is very important to me, and I and I still sort of mull about wondering what it means. Wouldn't be a a koan if it wasn't doing that to me, I guess. Um, I don't remember the number, uh, but the exchange is very is, is some version of because I can't remember it verbatim. Is a you know what what is what is this what is the bodhisattva kanon? Or Avalokiteshvara, um, and some, and I don't remember the order, but somebody responds all over the hands or all over the body, right? All over the body is, is hands and a thousand hands and eyes. Um, um, and then there's another description of the Bodhisattva. Um, being like a hand reaching for a pillow in the middle of the night. And then uh, it ends with, not, instead of all over the body are hands and eyes, it's throughout the body there is hands and eyes. And I don't know how much there is a difference between all over and all throughout or through all through all about the body, but um, I've, I'm still mulling over that. But I've always resonated with the, the hand. Uh, the hand reaching for the pillow in the middle of the night. Um, because I, I've i never pictured it as, I mean, I pictured it as a, as a comforting thing. Um, and the, the take away my suffering completely thing. But I've also really taken it, at, I've really sort of pictured it as like, no, just because you get, you, you reach over for a pillow at night doesn't mean you necessarily might not, you, you'll, you'll feel better. <laughs> you might just need it. <laughs> to cry into, to just like scream into, like it's not just about feeling better <laughs> in, in the, in the sort of less, you know, do X, get less suffering, uh, 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 uh pyramid scheme. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that, that, that case has always stuck out to me as, as something very resonant about Bodhisattva work. So thank you for that reminder. Thank you. Hello, Howard Bodhisattva. It's very nice to see you. It's good to see you too. When you were, I thought a lot about Avalokiteshvara when you were talking about looking and the practice of looking and regarding, and even the eye of wisdom in the hand, (laughs) you know, which is. I never, you know, when you were talking about this look, look, I also thought I wondered if it was also about pointing to to wisdom and compassion. Like I hadn't thought of the looking uh, as kind of expressing that. But I was thinking also that, you know, you've been talking about you responding to the people you are working with. And also, they're teaching you at the same time. So it's a really beautiful uh, talk that you've given. The other thing that came to mind for me was this practice uh, as a movement from control to compassion. 
And uh, I really appreciate your compassionate heart. So thank you. Thank you for your kind words. I I, I actually haven't uh from control to compassion sounds like a sounds like a like a, the next hot Buddhist book um the uh, title uh but I I do think that 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 resonates quite a lot with me um when faced with with uh, in this work when faced with but also not just in this work when faced with suffering one wants to control <laughs> um and I don't think my my desire for control has 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 uh, disappeared or even lessened through practice or this work, but I sure as hell notice when it's kicked up, <laughs> um, and I'm much more conscious and aware of um, when it arises out of selfish concern, um, and am more able to. I mean. Part of it, part of it, yeah. Part of it is compassion for sure. I think that's. But I think this is where wisdom comes in, where prajna comes in. Um, uh, and I think I experience it, and feel it, and think of it um, as possibilities. As just not. As this is not the only way that one can approach this or be here. Um, that there's wisdom and compassion, even in recognizing that it's really hard to want to look at the thing that causes you suffering. Like even acknowledging the wanting to look away is, in, or can be at least, and is, I think, um, a Dharma gate or an opportunity uh, for, uh, for insight, for, for, in, for compassion. Anyway, I don't know if that made sense, but thank you. It makes sense. And, you know, you're noticing the impulse to want to control or get away from or turn away from the intensity of what someone might be expressing to you and for them to want to turn away from or get away from. And then allowing space to be completely with that without trying to make it something different. That's what I mean by not trying to control it. And, uh, and it's a really wonderful practice that you get to do every day, maybe every minute of your life, if you're lucky. Thank you. Again, uh, I really appreciated your talk, Howard. One thing that sticks with me is just your talking about miracles, that word, uh, in the context of as a Buddhist chaplain uh, with uh, patients, many, most of whom I would imagine are coming from a Christian context. And that's just, it's just interesting uh, how we think of, you know, uh, of Alakiteshvara helping out in the midst of terrible situations and uh, some patient who's uh, at death's door, perhaps, or, or in intense pain hoping for a miracle. I just, um, I don't, I don't have a particular question or comment, just that I'm struck by that uh, yearning for some, uh, from our perspective, it's not about fixing or control, but yearning for something to uh, make a difference in, in, 
an extreme situation. So I just, it's just um, struck me, and I just wondered if you had any other comments on that. Yeah, it's good to hear from you, Daigen. Um I know I keep making references to other passages, but I, I really just think about um, Genjo, the opening of Genjo Koan here of, um, and with the Buddha way, there is life, you know, there is fullness um, and lack, there is birth and death, there is light, there is sentient, there are sentient beings and Buddhas. And, um, you know, among the many translations, some, some version of and amid our, you know, amid our, 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 despite all of this or that with all of this flowers fall in our regret and hated weeds grow apace uh, or something um regret and yearning and i i i find that to be both um uh uh, uh both well a, a tragic and also uh restorative part of um mm-hmm. this practice and i think it has to be both um that I, I think you know in in some ways it's very easy to completely you know say and i and I know this was my trapping for 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 some years of my first years of practice of like, oh, I'm doing Buddhist practice, so I'll just like you know find out where the root of desire is, take a knife and just cut it out completely, yeah, you can do that, that's totally feasible. <laughs> Um, and then you dig further and you're like, okay, this goes down pretty far deep. I don't know if I'm going to get this out. <laughs> um, but now I know better where the roots are, where they're going and how they're connected to all these other roots of desire and how it makes me more aware and conscious of like, again, my commitments and my values, um, and how my own suffering is particular to myself, but shared because when i am with someone who is suffering and i am with a family member who is crying out for a miracle because they don't know what else what else they can do mm-hmm. in the face of impermanence um my own suffering is 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 stoked as well yeah and that is an opportunity to to be with people um to really connect with them so yeah um just because the buddha way says this uh or is available to us does doesn't take away the, the the very real fact of our not just that suffering is there in a sort of factual way but the actual emotional experience of it if there are no other comments or questions um, if there's time for one, if someone has something, but uh, we could do the closing chant and uh, bodhisattva vows and announcements. So, any last uh, comments? Joe, did you have your hand up? Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll take up uh, too much time. Um, Howard, you covered a, a lot of territory. Uh, you did a couple quick things. Uh, those of us in the 12-step programs, when we discuss the third step, we talk a lot about um, using Bill Wilson's um, uh, uh, catchphrase, which he may have lifted from a, a Buddhist text, I don't know. Uh, but he, he said to beware of trying to fix, manage, and control. That's a phrase we use over and over again. 
Um, as far as miracles are concerned, uh, that, that's a word that's been uh, tossed around in our culture, you know, uh, so it's, uh, it's got a myriad of meaning. Um, as, as I see it, uh, a miracle is any phenomenon which doesn't uh, accord with expectations. And if, if I can detach, if I can detach from expectations, then nothing is a miracle and everything is a miracle. Yeah, thank you for that, Joe. I agree. <laughs> um, and sometimes it's uh, with, with patients and families, sometimes it's... Um, it is meeting them where they need with their miracle, right? Not, not fulfilling it, of course. Um, uh, but sometimes, uh, there is room to, to transform it, right? To, to, um, uh, I've haven't, I haven't done this myself, but I've heard stories from other chaplains who've, who've worked with miracles in interesting ways, um, of saying that, being able to say that maybe death is a miracle. Mm. Maybe being able to meet um, the thing that comes for all of us in a way that fits the person is a miracle. 